So Karl Barth, one of the greatest theologians of the last century, was hounded by a group of academics. Um, they had a simple question for him, and the question was this. What's the most profound thought you've ever had? Now, this group of academics were almost certainly trying to find, get inside Karl Barth's head, to find some of the answers to uh, theology's tricky questions. And I'm guessing they were thinking, like, how do we, you know, explain how a loving God allows suffering? Or, or what about the question of predestination or the nature of hell? Some of these big questions. So eventually they do find him. They pin him down, not literally. Um, but they get to ask the questions. So they say, Dr. Bart, what's the most profound thing? thought you've ever had and he ponders for a moment and then he leans in getting ready to answer so with excitement they lean into and he says the most profound thought I've ever had is this and they're like and he says Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so they look disappointed you look disappointed <clears throat> they were hoping for more but this is the most profound thought you could ever get your head around, ever get your heart around. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, in the room, there's a very good chance that you intellectually believe that. But when head knowledge becomes heart knowledge, it begins to transform your life. We're in a teaching series right now entitled The Beauty of the Gospel. We're looking at this gospel proclamation that flows from the very heart of God and it flows out and begins to transform our lives and it begins to transform the world around us. As it flows from the heart of God, we begin to experience forgiveness, victory over darkness. We are clothed with power from on high. It forms a new family. It brings about justice in the earth. And today we're going to look at our identity that comes about through this gospel proclamation that we are God's beloved. And next week we're going to look at the opportunity that this cultural moment presents for the gospel. But today we're going to zoom in on our identity as God's beloved. Now, to rewind a couple of weeks, John Carter spoke about the gospel forming a new family. He used this slide, a beautiful slide, I think you'll agree, looking at how things flow from the heart of God. It starts with God's being, his character, his nature, and from the overflow of God's being, he acts towards us. And the activity of God towards us um, through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, outpouring of the Spirit, that forms our being. To, exactly. To, to borrow the language from the Apostle Paul. Can I hear an amen from the children at the back? <laughs> that will come in time. Um, we, we are now described as new creations, a totally new identity formed in Christ. And from the overflow of our being, we begin to act in the world around us. We begin to participate in the purposes of God. So what begins with the character, nature, what begins in the heart of God begins to flow out and actually form us and through us bring formation to the environment around us. And John applied that to this understanding of the gospel forming a new family, that this begins with the character and nature of God that God exists in community, in family. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how does He act towards us? He acts towards us as a father. 
This is one of the defining lessons in the Exodus narrative that the people of Israel go from slavery in Egypt under the tyrant Pharaoh, the oppressor. They are liberated at the Red Sea and they begin to enter into this relationship with Yahweh God. And he says, I'm going to be a father towards you. You will be my treasured possession. But every time Yahweh God comes close, the people of Israel flinch. Because when you've known abuse and when all you've known is abuse, when a power figure moves towards you, muscle memory means you're going to flinch because you're expecting to be punished. And it takes 40 years in the wilderness for God to say, I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm a different kind of father. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lead you to a place where you are free and you can thrive. I'm a perfect, loving father. And they grow into that understanding as the people of God. So it starts with God's being the triune God. He acts as a father towards us. How does that affect our being? We begin to understand that we're sons and daughters of God. How great is the love the father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God for that is what we are. When you understand that as your identity, it changes everything and you begin to act differently in the world. You begin to see those around you as your brothers and sisters. If she, you know, is, is, you know, in relationship with you, then you see her differently, not just as a colleague or as a friend, but as your sister. The guy to your left, he's your brother, right? So when you see people, the homeless guy at the street corner, he's your brother. The refugee that you've bumped into struggling with her English, she's your sister. Your boss isn't just your boss, they're your sister or or brother. Essentially, we're family. And all great movements that have moved towards reconciliation have had this understanding at their core. The civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. This isn't just your enemy. In fact, they're no longer your enemy. They're your brother. They're your sister. Hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. And we begin to function as family. Now, I want to apply this same thinking to this understanding that we are God's beloved. So it starts with the very character and nature of God, that God is love. He's not just loving. He's more than just loving. He is love. 1 John 4, 16, God is is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So this begins in the very heart of God. How does God act towards us? Well, try this one on for size. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, Jesus is God incarnate and therefore Jesus is love incarnate. In Jesus, we see perfect love move towards us. And the Apostle John, who's writing these words, goes on to say things like this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, love doesn't have a human origin, source of origin. It has a divine origin. It begins in the heart of God. The same writer says... This is how we know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us. So in Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, we see love coming towards us. What does it mean for our identity? Well, I've already quoted 1 John 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. 
Like not just a little sprinkling, he's overwhelmed us with love. Now, the Apostle John writing these words, all the verses I've quoted are essentially from the Apostle John. Um, In the scholarly world, there's debate as to which John actually wrote the fourth gospel which John wrote these letters. Like, it's a slight unknown. So in academic circles, they just nicknamed this John the beloved disciple. We don't know exactly which John wrote these words, so we're just going to call him the beloved disciple because that's how John describes himself in his gospel account. He says, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Of all the disciples, it seems that he's the one that internalized this truth at the deepest level and it transformed him from the inside out. Imagine that as an introduction. Hey, I'm Pete, but you can just know me as the beloved disciple, you know, because that's my truest self. That's who I really am. The beloved disciple, right? And, and you can see essentially he's the one that writes these love letters, because he'd internalized this truth in the most beautiful way. And from the overflow of this identity where we realize the words of the Father spoken over Jesus are the same words spoken over us. This is my son. And this is my daughter whom I love. With them I'm well pleased. When that becomes the voice that you're tuned into, it transforms how you act in the world. That essentially we have these two great commandments. One great commandment in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Or to put it in these words of the beloved disciple. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God, it's kind of like love between the father and the children must also love their brother and sister. And what I want to do this morning is zoom in on this identity that we are God's beloved. We are God's beloved. How do we enter into this truth? Not just intellectually, right? But how does head knowledge become heart knowledge? And firstly, it's something we should pray for. If we want this head knowledge to become heart knowledge, we should pray that into being. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. This is a prayer he prays over the church in Ephesus. This is the prayer I'm praying over KXC. I want to encourage you, this is the prayer that you should be praying over yourself. That being rooted in and established in love, Paul says, I pray that you would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul says, I I pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now we read this post the enlightenment and during the enlightenment, reason was elevated above all other faculties. So when we talk about knowledge, we mean something you can intellectually get your head around and something you can verify. Two plus two equals Yeah, tough crowd. It's four, by the way. If you didn't know that, this breakthrough moment for you. Two plus two equals four, right? And we can verify that. This is something you can intellectually get your head around. Um, So post the Enlightenment, when we talk about knowledge, we mainly mean intellectual understanding. But in the ancient world, when they spoke about knowledge... It was language that meant something experiential. Now, just to illustrate this fairly graphically, in the gospel accounts, when it says that Mary was a virgin, right? The the older translations that are truer to the actual text say Mary had not known a man, right? Now, of course, she knew men, right? She had a dad, probably had brothers, probably had uncles and friends, but she had not known a man, no, no, man, right? 
so that was the language. In other words, knowledge isn't something purely intellectual. It's something that enters you into the innermost part of your being and transforms you from the inside out, right? So when Paul says, I pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, he's not saying, I pray that you'd intellectually understand this truth. He is praying that, but he's praying for more than that. He's praying that this truth would enter the core part of your being and transform you from the inside out. Now, it, amongst the people of God in, in churches, most people would say, I believe that God is loving, right? I intellectually believe that. But could they push further on and say, and it is my experience that I enjoy his presence in such a way that I feel loved. And there's a gap between the two. And I want to encourage you not just to settle at intellectual knowledge. This would be the AI answer to the question. It's like God is all loving. He loves all his creation as a creature made in his image. I am an object of his love and an object of his affection. That would be the AI answer, right? Of like intellectual truths, but there's something Paul's praying for and, and he begins to explain it more. I pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge and that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That isn't a sprinkling, by the way. That is drowning in a sea of his love. Paul says, I, I, I want this love to go in. Head knowledge to become heart knowledge. And, and I'm, I'm praying to God that it would overwhelm you overwhelm you and that's what I'm praying for today that head knowledge would become heart knowledge and I'm praying that it would overwhelm you as you understand how much you are loved by the father so it, it, it starts praying Lord here I am whatever my experience of your love is today I know there's more so I pray that you would help me know this love that surpasses full understanding and I want to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That isn't my current experience, so I'm pressing in for more. I want to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So we pray it. Do you pray for that to be your experience? That, that's what Paul would pray over us as a church. And, and then we move beyond prayer to dragging our imperfect selves into the presence of God. Our imperfect selves, all the brokenness, like, the entirety of our beings, we drag our true selves into the presence of God. I love these words from the Leonard Cohen song. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack. There's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets in. And I want to suggest that's also how the love gets in. Like there is a crack in your heart. There are cracks in every human heart. And there is a crack in every human soul. And that's how the light gets in. And that's how the love gets in. The love flows through the cracks, right? So Leonard Cohen was basically saying, forget the perfect offering that you aren't able to bring right now. This side of eternity, you ain't gonna be able to bring that perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. There's a crack in your heart and there's a crack in your soul. That's how the light gets in. That's how the love gets in. The love flows through the cracks. And if you read the gospel accounts, who are the ones that miss out on encounters with grace and encounters with love? And it's the Pharisees, the ones trying to offer perfection. The one trying to demonstrate to the crowd, look at me, I'm perfectly obedient to the Torah. They miss out on love because they're living under this illusion. There's no cracks. 
the heart isn't cracked, the soul isn't cracked. But the ones who acknowledge there's a crack in my heart and in my soul and I need a saviour, guess what they find? They find salvation. Jesus said, I haven't come for the healthy. He's kind of, he's playing around a bit because everyone's broken, right? I haven't come for those who think they're healthy, living under this illusion that there is no crack. Like, I've come for those that need a doctor. And he makes a beeline for those who recognise they need a doctor. So you think of the stories the woman caught in the act of adultery. She's naked, thrown in front of Jesus with an angry mob ready to kill her. She's not bringing about a perfect offering in that moment. She knows there's a crack in everything. And that's a moment where the love flows through the cracks. You think of the Samaritan woman at the well. She's an outcast, midday heat. She's there on her own because she's been ostracized from the community. Like she's had five marriages. She's currently with another guy. She's lived in these codependent relationships. She's fully aware that there's cracks. And she enters into this conversation with Jesus who offers living water and the love flows through the cracks. You think of Zacchaeus hiding in a tree. He's aware that there are cracks, that everyone hates him. And Jesus says, why don't you come down from the tree? Let's have some food together. And the love flows through the cracks. You think of the apostle Peter. He's denied Jesus three times. He's drowning in his own shame. And then he has this encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. He's fully aware of the cracks. He's not bringing a perfect offering in that moment, right? but he brings his imperfect self to Jesus and the love flows through the cracks. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. We bring our true selves, like warts and all, into the presence of Jesus and the love flows through the cracks. I've shared this story before, um, but I'll share it again because it's a key part of my story. So in my mid-20s, I went through something in in ministry that honestly, it, it broke my heart. I think it put a fracture in my soul at a very deep level. And I went through loads of prayer ministry, had amazing friends and family around me, but I I knew I needed professional help. So I started meeting with this therapist. And through the course of these sessions with the therapist, it it was clear where the crack had emerged in my soul. Now, you'll know this if if you've been through therapy, that you bring a presenting issue. And then there's normally a moment three, four, five weeks in where your therapist will say, look, it's way worse than you think. (laughs) We've been dealing with this, but the crack actually is way bigger than you thought. And it actually predates this thing that you've been through. It began here right? And, and that was my journey of like, oh, wow, this is way worse than I thought. The crack is way deeper than I thought. And essentially what was happening is there was a, a battle in the core of my being between my true self and my false self. Now, my false self from a very young age because of experiences um, had told me over decades and its voice then was very hard to distinguish from my true self. This voice basically told me, Pete, you are as lovable as you are successful. So every time you achieve something, every time you succeed and people notice, that's an opportunity to experience love. It was like a drug. And every time I did succeed and every time I did achieve something, it was like this rush. Oh, I feel worthy of love now. I need more. I need more success and I need more achievements. And it took this crisis moment, this moment where my heart was broken, where my true self began to speak. Up until that point, my true self had been drowned out by the noisy false self. And the true self basically said, you've been neglecting me. 
and, and I really need some affection and I really need some affirmation. Here's the deal. When you present this self to the crowd, you know it's not your full self. You know it's not the true self, but you're presenting the best version of yourself to the crowd. Here's the danger. That presentation, that false self will experience a lot of affirmation and love, but only you know that's not the true you. And therefore you live with this anxiety. If I present the real me, what if that doesn't experience love? What if that experiences rejection? Then I won't be able to bounce back. So I'll keep playing the game, presenting this. And there's a gap. So this one is starved of affirmation for being the true you and starved of affection. And the false self gets all the accolades. And it normally takes a crisis moment for your true self to speak up and say, help, I need to experience love. And that's what happened for me in this moment of therapy. I began to bring my true self with all of its insecurity and vulnerability into the presence of God, right? And the chasm began to close. We call that integration, right? Like the chasm began to close. I'm still on that journey, right? There's still a war within me. I can tell you that, so it can be. There's still a war within me, but the gap is beginning to close because the love of the Father has been flowing through the cracks and healing the depths of my soul. Now, I remember at that time, I, I read a book that I found incredibly helpful. In fact, Phil Martin, um, about a week ago, he said, look, I, I want to do some teaching with the students at KXE about our identity as sons and daughters of God. Like, what's the best book out there? And I said, there's this incredible book called All Things New. It's about living in the story of God and finding your identity in the, the story of God. That's a joke, by the way, because for those that are new, that's my book. Um, and the reason I recommended it is only nine people have read it and I wanted to get into double figures and thought Phil might be the one to take me across the line into double figures. Um, if you want to be that 10th person, come and chat to me afterwards. Um, um, but after he sent the sort of ha-ha emoji, like obviously that's a joke, what actual book um, would you recommend? I basically said, well, this is perhaps the defining piece of work on this subject, Brennan Manning. Um, who wrote this book, Abba's Child. Um, and if you've not read it, I would highly recommend you reading this book. It was one of the moments where I think I found language for the pain in my own story. Now, Brennan Manning basically wrote this book um, articulating the struggle that he'd been through and how he encountered grace. And he opens up the book telling the story of going on a 20-day um, retreat, 20-day silent retreat. And just imagine that, a 20-day silent retreat. Every morning he would meet with his therapist um, and they would talk about the inward struggle, this war going on within him. And then he'd have the rest of the day silence and solitude to encounter Christ and his own internal world. Um, and what came up within him was this wrestle between the false self and the true self. The false self he, he calls the imposter. He writes this, the sad irony is that the imposter cannot experience intimacy in any relationship. His narcissism excludes others. Incapable of intimacy with self and out of touch with his feelings, intuitions and insight, the imposter is insensitive to the moods, needs and dreams of others. Reciprocal sharing is impossible. The imposter has built a life around achievements, success, busyness, and self-centered activities that bring gratification and praise from others. It's the nature of the false self to save us from knowing the truth about our real selves, from penetrating the deeper causes of our unhappiness, from seeing ourselves as we really are, vulnerable, afraid, terrified, 
and unable to let our real selves emerge. Um, so he's on this 20-day retreat. Every morning meets with the psychotherapist. Every afternoon he's doing battle with his internal world. Um, and he comes to this conclusion that, that he can't find healing by hating the false self. Right? Hating the false self is just a form of self-hatred. This is part of, of who you are, part of your journey. Rather, he knows that this false self needs to be dragged into the presence of Jesus, the one who loves us. Um, so he writes a letter to his false self. This is the final day of his retreat. He sits down and he writes a letter to his false self. And I'm going to read it. Yes, I do read from a Kindle. And I know some snobs in the room are looking down on me. Welcome to the digital world, everyone. Um, his backstory is he had a very troubled upbringing and experienced a lot of abandonment and neglect. And he's coming to terms with this story on this 20-day retreat. He writes this. Good morning, imposter. Surely you're surprised by the cordial greeting. You probably expected, hello, you little jerk since I've hammered you from day one of this retreat. Let me begin by admitting that I've been unreasonable, ungrateful and unbalanced in my appraisal of you. Of course, you're aware, puff of smoke, that in addressing you, I'm talking to myself. You are not some isolated impersonal entity living on an asteroid, but a real part of me. I come to you today not with a rod in hand, but with an olive branch. When I was a little boy and first knew that no one was there for me, you intervened and showed me where to hide. In those depression days of the 1930s, you recall, my parents were doing the best they could with what they had just to provide food and shelter. At that moment in time, you were invaluable. Without your intervention, I would have been overwhelmed by dread, paralyzed by fear. You were there for me and played a crucial protective role in my development. Thank you. When I was four years old, you taught me how to build a cottage. Remember the game? I would crawl under the covers from the head of the bed to the footrest and pull the sheets, blanket and pillow over me, actually believing that no one could find me. I felt safe. I'm still amazed at how effectively it worked. My mind would think happy thoughts and I'd spontaneously smile and start to laugh under the covers. We built that cottage together because the world we inhabited was not a friendly place. But... In the construction process, you taught me how to hide my real self from everyone and initiated a lifelong process of concealment, containment and withdrawal. But then your malevolent side appeared and you started lying to me. Brennan, you whispered, if you persist in this folly of being yourself, your few long-suffering friends will hit the bricks, leaving you alone. Stuff your feelings, shut down your memories, withhold your opinions and develop social graces, so you'll fit in wherever you are. And so the elaborate game of pretense and deception began. Because it worked, I raised no objection. As the years rolled by, you, I, got strokes from a variety of sources. We were elated and concluded the game must go on. But you needed someone to bridle you and rein you in. I had neither the perception nor the courage to tame you, so you continued gathering momentum along the way. Your appetite for attention and affirmation became insatiable. I never confronted you with the lie because I was deceived myself. The bottom line, my pampered playmate, is that you were both needy and selfish. You need care, love, and a safe dwelling place. 
on this last day of my retreat in the Rockies. My gift is to take you where unknowingly you have longed to be, into the presence of Jesus. Your days of running riot are history. From now on, you slow down, slow very down. In his presence, I notice that you've already begun to shrink. Want to know something, little guy? You're much more attractive that way. I'm nicknaming you Pee-wee. Naturally, you're not going to roll over suddenly and die. I know you'll get disgruntled at times and start to act out. But the longer you spend time in the presence of Jesus, the more accustomed you grow to his face, the less adulation you will need because you will have discovered for yourself that he is enough. And in the presence, you will delight in the discovery of what it means to live by grace and not by performance. Your friend, Brennan. There's a crack. There's a crack in everything. And that's how the love gets in. The reality is, more often than not, it takes a crisis. We can go through life allowing the false self to dominate and we begin to present a certain person to those around us. And the true self is like, oh, I'm worried that if I present the real me, I won't experience love. Everyone seems to like this version of me and the crack begins to grow and it normally takes a crisis. A breakdown of a relationship, time out of work, a 20-day retreat of going mad, right? a financial crisis, crisis of whatever sort. And normally in that moment of crisis, you become so desperate that your true self basically says, I need to experience love. The false self is getting all the attention. And in those moments, what the courageous do, and this is the story of the woman at the well, this is the story of Zacchaeus, and this is the story of the apostle Peter, and all these accounts in the gospels, this is a moment of boldness where people bring their imperfect selves into the presence of Jesus and the love flows through the cracks. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. You can't bring it anyway, right? There's a crack. There's a crack in everything. And that's how the love gets in.